Have you ever heard a musical artist described as having great chops? What does that mean? Well, the term chops is slang in the music business that refers to an artist that has developed great skills over time, whether they are a musician, composer, producer, or other titles associated with the music business. This is Scott Grimaldi, your host of Got Chops. Join me as I interview one musical artist per episode that I've had the pleasure of either performing, recording, or work with in my career. Plus, I'll be interviewing artists I've always wanted to speak with. We'll discover how each artist developed their chops, listen to their stories, and much more. This is Got Chops. My special guest artist for today is a virtuosic Dutch recorder player who has worked with well-known orchestras and ensembles all over the world. That's him on the track behind me as the featured soloist with the Holland Baroque Ensemble performing Nach Klang by Dutch composer Theo Lovendy. He has recorded more than 20 CDs with works by Handel, Telemann, Vivaldi, and Jacob van Eck. His other musical accomplishments include approximately 100 commissioned pieces written for him, collaborations with various Dutch filmmakers, and soundtrack contributions to several films directed by Werner Herzog. This highly specialized recorder player certainly got chops. Please welcome Eric Bosgraf. Hello, Eric. This is Scott from Got Chops. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Scott. Nice to meet you. Eric hails from the Netherlands, and right now he's calling from Latvia, and he just did um, an in-person interview, he was just telling me, and uh, then he's going to be doing some master classes and performances. So, Eric, welcome to the show. Great to have you. Thank you so much. You're a Dutch musical artist. What does the American music slang got chops mean to you? Well... I, I knew it intuitively, but I've, it's not something that that we learned in school. It, um, I would I would think that it means that you have a certain uh, versatility on your instrument, a certain uh, virtuosity, even um, no technical difficulties. Uh, that those are the things that I associated with. Is that kind of correct? Absolutely. Um, in America. Um, probably more than where you uh, grew up. Um, it came originally, the meaning was it had to do with the armature of brass players, trumpet, trombone players. So they referred to them as their chops. But as years rolled along, uh, it became very generic. So when we're talking about musicians here in the States, we say, man, he's got great chops, meaning his ability his musicality, his phrasing. So it's, it's a lot more generic than what it in, initially was intended for. But 
You're absolutely right. That's great. So speaking about the term got chops, um, do you ever hear other musicians from Holland also use that same slang term? I, I can't recall. It's not something that you would say in Dutch, but also some of the international musicians that I've played with, it's not so common, but that could also be because maybe it's not such a thing to use in classical music uh, and more a thing in jazz or pop. I don't know. Probably, probably where you're at, uh, and I, I think you're, you're spot on with that. Here in the States, I always start off every interview by asking the same question. What does, what does the musical slang got chops mean to you? And I've interviewed everyone from pop to jazz to bluegrass to classical. And even in classical in the States, uh, the artists do refer to it as, you know, when you have great technique. So I guess where you're at, uh, it's not referred to in the classical world. Well, or, or, or not as much, maybe. But yeah, I don't know. Um, it's, I think, also something that wouldn't be used by people that are not native speakers of English. Right. Okay. Or not so, not so easily. If you were talking to a colleague and at a performance of someone that you went to pay money to see, and how would you relate to your friend how great that musician was? I think I, I, I would just use adjectives like fantastic or great. Um, yeah, I, I think I wouldn't use got chops, but now that I know a little bit more about it, I, I, I will start using this uh, <laughs> vernacular. I think it sounds, I think it sounds really cool. Okay. Be my guest. That would be great. I read that you were born and raised in a town called Drachten. I hope I said it correctly. Yeah, kind of. There is in, in Dutch, there is this, this guttural G, which hurts the throat a little bit, you know, the G, so it's Drachten. But uh, it's it's good. It's good enough. That town is located in northern Netherlands. Please share with my listeners what it was like to grow up in that town and possibly other parts of the Netherlands. Yeah. So Drachten is um, a small town in the in a region called Friesland where they have an autonomous culture and language. It's actually the, the, the official second language in the Netherlands. Um much like Catalan in, in Spain or Welsh in, uh, in England, um, so in Great Britain. So that means that, uh, yeah, it's, it's a little bit more remote, although the Netherlands is, especially from the American perspective, just such a small country. Um, and still, we, well, we had quite a rich cultural life. There are many uh, brass bands, um, and my grandfather was a, a, a great amateur musician and uh, my parents were music lovers and uh, they, yeah, they instilled a love for music uh, in me. And I had some great teachers in the, the music school in my teenage years that really, um, yeah, ignited the passion, so to say, for, um, for music um, and the recorder in particular. And I remember going through to um, a performance of uh, Bach's B minor mass. And as I think I was 14 or 15 years old and deciding back then that, okay, it sounds might sound a bit ominous, but I really decided back then that I should dedicate my life to this magic thing called music. Um, and since then I, uh, I got hooked and I also kind of decided to, to, 
to study and learn about it in every possible way. So um, I have started to study musicology. I played also different instruments um, and different styles. I, I improvise. I played in rock band. I played very modern music, a very old music, and learn also about the socioeconomic um, backgrounds of the music, especially the earlier music, like who was actually listening to the 17th century music. So yeah, yeah, in in you could say I I, I I've I've decided to become a nerd uh, back then. <laughs> Maybe that's a, a, a less flattering way to say it. No, you're not a nerd. You're a very sophisticated, uh, very intelligent musician. Was recorder your first instrument, and at what age did you begin to play and study music? So the recorder was indeed my my first instrument, and I was eight or nine. Um, however, I thought I wanted to play the oboe, and I did play the oboe for quite a while until I f- found out that the oboe is better listened to than played. Uh, I, I somehow didn't really work playing that instrument for me, um, although I really loved the sound. Um, and yeah, with the recorder, it was uh, a very, very good match. I, I played for hours and hours, and my parents didn't have to push me to, to practice at all. And uh, I felt like I had the um, the possibility to express myself on that instrument without any boundaries. Um, and on other instruments, I always felt kind of um, yes, I had to that I had had to kind of take off a little bit of my expressive uh, capabilities because of technical difficulties. In the states. We normally start on recorder, and they have a very inexpensive recorder-like instrument called the flutophone. And it just gets you used to playing, you know, the typical, you know, left-hand three-finger notes and the right-hand three-finger notes and just playing simple melodies. And then a year after that, you gravitate towards, okay, there's a demonstration of band instruments. And then you go home and tell mom and dad, mm-hmm. I think I want to play the trumpet. I want to play the trombone, whatever. Did you have that same experience? And if so, did you play in any school bands? Well, we don't have this tradition of school bands uh, in the Netherlands, but I did play in the local uh, wind band. Uh, but I played there. I played the oboe in the wind band. Um, but... Uh, I actually d- gravitated towards the recorder, and I, I the, yeah, sometimes I get asked the question, why do you play the recorder? And it's actually more like, why am I still playing the recorder? You know, as for so many people, it is only an upbeat to what other people consider a real instrument. Um, so yeah, I, I um, yeah, I just kept playing it, and I've, 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 I felt at home with it, and. It wasn't always easy in in teenage years because uh, it was I, I was easily an easily target for mocking um, because it wasn't considered cool at that time obviously. But uh, yeah, I, I I just kept following my passion regardless of what what other people thought. Bravo for you. Uh, we have something in common. Um, the first band instrument that I was I gravitated towards was the flute. So back then, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to tell you how long ago this was, I'm a bit older than you, but back then, uh, it was that old stereotype, you know, boys don't play flute, 
Uh, girls don't play drums. So absolutely, I mean, ridicule every day, be made fun of. But there was something, you know, deep inside yeah. of me that said, no, I want to play the flute. Uh, now, you know, when I teach, you know, and we have uh, lots of uh, young men, young boys that play flute, they're not subjected to what you and I were subjected to, you know. And I often wonder what that would have been like not to have that, you know, these bullies, you know, say such, you know, horrible things to you. Yes. But the, the one thing that you and I also have in common is you mentioned passion. Uh, it did not deter us to say, no, okay, I'm going to drop this. I'm going to do what other people think I should be doing. So good for you. <laughs> and good for you, too. So what musical genres and artists were you inspired early on in your life? Well, um, I listened a lot to the recordings of Franz Bruggen. Um, he was he, he used to be a recorder player, but he started conducting um, in his 40s. And yeah, I, I really listened to that. I listened also to the Amsterdam Lucas Tardis Quartet, which was a, a recorder quartet, which was quite famous at that time and yeah i they were actually four guys and so that was also i think helped being um a kind of role model and not just um yeah being being on my own my brother actually also played the recorder and the bassoon so i played a lot with him and um yeah but i didn't really have many role models i think i i was also and still am kind of an omnivore when it comes to music. And I listen to all kinds of music and am inspired by, by different types of music um, as well. Good for you. That's great. Uh, I want to share something as a, um, a woodwind doubler. And for those in the audience that don't know what the word doubler means, that means a, a woodwind player that plays flute, sax, clarinet. Whereas uh, Eric is specializing in the recorder. But occasionally in my field of playing live music, uh, occasionally the uh, read books that I'm playing where it says, okay, like the one I'm doing now, I'm playing um, piccolo, flute, alto flute, clarinet, alto saxophone. And similar to the other show I was just doing a few weeks ago, it called for soprano recorder. So I have, um, you know, a handful of different recorders. I have, uh, like yourself, sopranino, soprano, alto, tenor. I don't have bass, contrabass, and I have, you know, nice wooden recorders. But uh, the recorders I have are nothing like what you have. When I buy a recorder and learn how to play, I'm learning how to play the recorder parts. In your case, as being a recorder specialist, you own and play with expertise all the various size recorders, not to mention that they are all the finest handcrafted recorders made from the finest of wood. So please share with my listeners the collection of brand recorders that you have, and if you have a favorite one that you love to play, and why. Actually, um, they are not, as you said, from a certain brand, but they are from uh, certain makers. And um, I have worked a lot with Ernst Meyer, who um, uh, unfortunately passed away a few years ago. There's actually a YouTube documentary about my collaboration with him. His name is Ernst Meyer. Um, and his sons have continued uh, the, the work that he started as a recorder and maker. So now I am 
working with them, mainly with Sebastian Meyer, um, to yeah, to to get new instruments and also for the instruments to be reversed. So they are handcrafted instruments. Actually, I'm just I've just come arrived yesterday from the Swiss mountains uh, and stayed a few few days at his house. And actually, that's one of the particular things that I find interesting being a recorder player that you work with um, people that that make craftsmen that the craftsmen that make a recorder really from scratch um, as a as a symphonic wind player you work with brands or with factories but the instruments are never so customized as you know having a unique instrument uh, made out of uh, special wood or even ivory um, I also work quite a bit with Monica Musch, which is a, a Freiburg-based uh, recorder maker that makes more the earlier type of recorders. So um, for your listeners, we the, the, the recorder that probably most of you have in mind uh, resembles the most uh, a, a Baroque recorder, uh, a recorder of, yeah, that was around at the beginning of the 18th century. Um, but there are also recorders from earlier times, like 17th, 16th, 15th century, um, and they look very differently. They, the bore shape is very different. The, the fingerings are very different. The transpositions that you have to play, the musical style, um, so and the pitch. So the, the, I have instruments in 440, which is the standard pitch of 442. Um, but then also semitone lower in A415 hertz, or even a whole tone lower in 392, or a semitone higher in, in 465 hertz, all um, made accustomed to uh, to be able to play the music from uh, the, the particular time period in the most convincing way. So yeah, that that the different pitches and the different sizes. Um, and the different styles of recorders that all adds up to a, a giant collection of, um, I think about a, a hundred recorders. I, I didn't count them. Uh, most of them hand yeah. handcrafted. Yeah. Wow. Well, let me piggyback on a, a few things that you were talking about. Yes, if you're a woodwind player, uh, you mostly have handcrafted mouthpieces. Um, ligatures, but not the entire instrument. And then uh, if you're a big artist, uh, a mouthpiece maker might come to you and say, hey, let me make a mouthpiece for you, and we'll call it the blah, blah, blah signature mouthpiece. So with you, you know, it's the entire instrument. You know, that's incredible craftsmanship. Um, Now, to piggyback on what you were saying about the different tunings, um, it's the same thing in the uh, saxophone world. So we have saxophones that are modern saxophones for today's music. And then the very early aspects of saxophones that were from the 1920s or a little bit before that. So I have a few of those horns, but they only work correctly if you have the original mouthpiece that came with that. Otherwise, the pitch is going to be all over the place. So we do have a lot of similarities in common uh, versus, you know, a recorder and then sax, flute, clarinet. So that that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, as 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 the, as the time continued, now we live in a globalized world, and we want to play, be able to play in, on the same pitch everywhere. But obviously, in a world that wasn't so well connected, you have more pitch differences. 
Um, actually, to, if I may um, dwell off the path a little bit, sure. my grandfather also played the saxophone, oh, and he was one of the fir- fir- yeah, and he was one of the first people in the north of the Netherlands to actually play that instrument in the 1930s, when nobody knew still how to play that. No he, he basically taught himself to, uh, yeah, he basically taught himself to play the, the saxophone. Wow. Yes, it's incredible. Wow, that's a beautiful history. Do you have his saxophone still in the family? N- no, actually, um, no, I, I, I don't. I mean, I have played a bit of saxophone myself, but that saxophone deserves to be in the hands of uh, a, a very good player, and I think it was sold to a very talented student. Oh, that's great. It got a good home. That's wonderful. Yes, yes. So you received your Master of Arts in Musicology from, and I hope I say this correctly, Utrecht University. Did I mangle that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm calling that good enough. Yeah, <laughs> You're being too kind. <laughs> All right. So share with my American <laughs> listeners what it was like to study at the old, one of the oldest universities in the Netherlands. And the definition of what mm-hmm. musicology is, I know what it is, and I want to piggyback on that in a little while, but most of my listeners probably have never heard that word. So if you could talk about the definition of that, what it was like to be at your university, and then I have some other questions pertaining to this. Mm-hmm. So musicology is uh, an academic study studying everything that is basically not practical about music <laughs> so not <laughs> not learning an actual instrument but learning about the history mainly the history of music uh, and that is very strong uh, in in utrecht uh, amsterdam has a stronger ethnomusicological uh, department so studying world music um, utrecht is very strong in in the, yeah studying the history of music and and the, the context and uh, also the, the composers and comparing composer style and learning to analyze that music philosophy. Um, yeah, all the, all of those aspects. Um, and I have, uh, I, I wrote my, um, thesis, master thesis about Dutch songbooks from the middle of the 18th century. Um, because that was not such a well-documented, um, era. And I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to do something useful and not write the millionth book on uh, Bach. Um, so, yeah, that's what I graduated. And also th- to do something that I could be particularly useful in with my language skills, you know, as a Dutch native. Oh, absolutely. So do you have um, a position as a musicologist at a university or for a firm that requires a musicologist to work for them? No, absolutely not. Actually, it's it is it's um, it's just extra an, an ec- extra knowledge that I have for playing, and it is it is uh, submissive basically to my playing. I am not. I wouldn't even. I know that on the internet I'm still called a musicologist, and I do have the degree. Um, but it's more like when you learn to drive the car, you need to know what all the road signs means and, right. and, and how the car kind of works. But but I mean, it's not actually um, that's not actually the art. Uh, and for me, it is it's uh, only how to say 
helping. So when I when I make programs, um, I use my musicological skills to dig up music or to analyze uh, different styles or to learn about for who 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 is listening to this music and but uh, all is done in the service of um making a better music performance so i don't do music theory for the sake of music theory you know what I mean? that's fascinating well um i can tie into uh what musicology is Years ago, one of the things I've done in the uh, music business, um, I used to transcribe music for different publishing companies uh, to make sure that before they publish it, you have the correct pitches, the right um, rhythms, the right chords. And then occasionally, well, not occasionally, but it grew into um, actually, I would receive like three or four packages a week from various uh, United States musicologists that were in a copyright uh, litigation case from someone that was, you know, very, very popular. And they were being sued from someone that said they stole the music from them. So I was the person that was hired to transcribe um, the both sides of the case and then hand it over to the musicologist mm -hmm. who I worked closely with. And they would ask me questions, okay, have you ever heard this style before this person recorded that. And they would put me on research to go in search of that. And a lot of these artists I knew about and said, oh, I know exactly who they work with or who they listen to. And then they would analyze my mm -hmm. work and then use it in a court of law. And that's how they uh, won or lost their cases. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I'll have to uh, fill you in, uh, you know, at another time about this. I think you would be really interested in, in, you know, the things that are out there that musicologists here can utilize in a court of law. It's it's really, I always found it really fascinating. Very tedious stuff, you know, to sit there and transcribe, but when you see how it's analyzed, it's like, wow, okay, I can see how they're going to win this case or how they're not going to win this case. Oh, wow. I, I never heard about this. Oh, okay. At the end of the interview, um, I'll I'll fill you in on a couple of things here. I think you, I could tell from your reaction you would be really, you know, fascinated by the stuff that's here. So when you were at the university and getting your a degree in um, musicology, is that where you also continued to study recorder and you know perform? Well, it is maybe a little bit strange, but um, you don't study recorder in a university in the Netherlands. You study it in a different school. So the the practical side of learning an instrument and the theoretical side are really quite separated. You do get a little bit of theory at conservatorium, but it is not to the level and depth that you do the musicology. So I, I basically started to study musicology out of frustration of the lack of uh, theoretical information at uh, um, my music academy. So I did I did both parallel, both studies uh, parallel, and um, just yeah it took a longer time to to finish them. You're the real deal. You you not only play, you're an expert at what you play. You know all about the music, the theory, the background. That's that's exceptional. So in addition to your recordings, um, you're playing music by the masters of classical music, such as Bach, Handel, Telemann, just to name a few. You've also recorded works by a blind Dutch musician and composer, Jacob van Eck, 
who hailed from the Dutch Golden Age. What was the inspiration and motivation to record Van Eck's recorder music and share with my listeners what the Dutch Golden Age was? Jacob van Eyck's music is a kind of uh, stockpile for young uh, recorder players. It's, it's part of the repertoire. And when I nearly graduated from uh, the music academy, I was asked to record, uh, to make a three CD box actually, um, at that time in 2006-07 um, of his music. And I am actually now in Latvia also to perform a recital of his music. And I have become kind of known as a sort of specialist of this music. So the golden age, which has become kind of a tainted term, because um, the golden age was the time in which the, the Netherlands was a huge colonial power, um, including the uh, and yeah, extracting a lot of wealth from co- uh, colonies and um, yeah, all the bad things that also go with that. So it's not, it was not, the golden age is a little bit um, politically dubious these times. But anyway, in, in um, uh, all of that money in, in Amsterdam in that time led to uh, the construction of the city uh, or the enlargement of the city as, as we know it these days with the canals. Um, and it also led to a rich scene of uh, amateur art lovers um, that wanted paintings of themselves, um, but also um, had time to play. I mean, obviously, when you are trying to survive, uh, you don't have time to learn instruments. So there was a huge need uh, for learning instruments, mainly by by amateurs. And um, those people mainly learned the recorder. The recorder was, the mo- it's difficult to imagine now because the recorder is maybe for some the most unpopular instrument these days. But back then it was the most popular instrument and it was played through all social classes and it was easy to, to carry and um, you could get it in all kinds of price, uh, uh, yeah, prices. And um, Jakob van Eyck, it's actually a kind of real book for recorder from the 17th century. So you have the popular tunes from the 17th century and then with um, basically what are written down improvisations or you could almost call them comprovisations as they are kind of in the middle between improvisation and composition. Um, he didn't write them down himself because he was blind. So someone was hired um, when he was already getting a bit older and people were afraid that when he was going to die that all of the music that he played would be lost. So someone was actually writing down, um, uh, he dictated all of his music to to a person and that that is that became the biggest, um, the largest collection for um, a solo wind instrument in music history known as the Der Fluiten Lusthof. And um, yeah, that's, that's, that was published and that became a huge success. Also because the variations are um, in uh, getting more and more difficult. So the first ones are quite slow and then they're getting faster and faster and faster, which means that there's really something for everyone in this, uh, in this book. Um, and at the same time, we, we since we don't have recordings from the 17th century, we we get a glimpse of um, the music that that Rembrandt or um, all of those uh, famous people in the 17th century actually listened to. Wow! In order for my listeners to get a sense of who you are as a recorder player, 
Please pick two or three tracks from your catalog of audio and or video recordings that I can filter excerpts into this interview as you talk about them now. Maybe it is nice to start with the oldest the oldest um, track that uh, I have sent you, which is called Canzon Terza by Bartolomé de Selma y Salaverde from the, this, the beginning of the 17th century, um, where you hear what we call a so-called Ganassi recorder um, together with a harpsichord um, at a low pitch and in uh, uh, one-fourth comma mean tone temperament. Um, this goes too far to to explain in in uh, in, in short, but um, in in, uh, in these days we mainly play an equal temperament, and in uh, mean tone temperament we play the major thirds lower. So for some listeners it might even sound a little bit out of tune or a bit awkward, um, and that's the, the, this this tuning and temperament is one of the, the special things about. And playing earlier music, it it gives it an, a specific taste. Um, Bartolomé de Selmi Salaverde was um, a bassoon player, and um, yeah, he he uh, he composed this wonderful music that I've released on a, on a CD called La Monarca, um, and I play together with harpsichordist um, Alessandro Piano. Then I have included a track from uh, my latest CD, which um, uh, is with trio sonatas by Georg Philipp Telemann, uh, a Baroque composer in the middle of the, the 18th century. He was much more famous than Bach in his time. Um, and yeah, that uh, his music was, was played yeah, by, by many people. And um, you will hear me um, playing together with uh, the gamba, viola da gamba, which is another quite uncommon instrument.
in this early music, we have also a variety of instruments that are uh, um, more rare these days. So um, for for adventurous listeners, there is a lot to discover in the earlier music. Yes. I've read that there are approximately 100 pieces of music that have been specifically composed for you. Are they commissioned works? Yes. Yes, they are commissioned works. Um, and they are also, in the, so some of them are solo pieces. Some of them are written for specific occasions. There are chamber music works. There are also very large pieces. Um, I, I wanted to enlarge my repertoire and also show that the recorder can survive, let's say, also in a hostile area um, as the symphony orchestra. So there, I, I have commissioned several concertos for for recorder and symphony orchestra. Um, and I have played them uh, over the, uh, in the whole world. I actually recently was in Mexico a few weeks ago and performed one of those pieces there. Um, yeah, the recorder really is now... Yeah, it is possible to play with with um, with a modern orchestra as long as you have um, a good instrument and you learn how to project uh, the the sound. So, how many years did it take you to build up that specific catalog of original compositions that you commissioned? Well, I already started as a student, just with uh, asking fellow composers that had to write pieces anyway if they wanted to to collaborate and. A recorder is also not something uh, that that composers learn to write for because it's simply absent in most uh, orchestration books. So the the only way for them to learn how to write for it is actually to work with a living musician. So um, yeah, that was nice. And uh, I've done uh, projects also with with uh, guitarist Isa Elias. In we we used to go to music academies um, in in Australia and then work with the composition department, and they all had to write. Uh, small pieces in a few days um, just to, to to get to know the instrument and how to write for um, for recording a guitar. Actually, it's one of the nicest things I find working with composers and I sometimes compare it to getting a tailored suit, you know, rather than, you know, having to squeeze yourself into something that is different, you know. A composer hears you play and then will compose something specifically for you Um and also with the chops, specific chops that you have, if I use the word correctly. <laughs> <laughs> very good. <laughs> uh, very well put. I like that. Uh, let me ask you a question as I hear you speaking about improvisation, your knowledge of theory. Have you ever considered dabbling in any sort of jazz improvisation or jazz-like playing? Well, I have. I have. Well, that's comes back to the question what jazz actually is. Um, I do not improvise in a bebop tradition, um, and uh, but I do improvise quite a bit. I've, re I've made several recordings um, where you can hear that. Uh, it's either more in the, the, the avant-garde style or um, it goes in the direction of modal prog rock jazz in on my album hotel terminus for example with saxophonist uh, yuri honing um or in the the it goes more in the direction of film music in in the, the work that i do with cellist Ernst reiziger for the movies of werner herzog 
So yeah, it 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 goes in different directions, but I'm not sure if it qualifies as jazz. And and frankly, it doesn't interest me if it's if that's the correct label or not. And the musicians that I play with also try, even though they are, they are sometimes annoyed by the label jazz musicians, because in some ways it is also a little bit confining. Just as I find the label classical music, a classical musician also is a bit confining i mean we are we are all musicians in in uh, in the current time listening to a plethora of different kinds of music and and reacting to that and doing something with with, with these influences i couldn't agree more you were talking about filmmakers um i know you've had collaborations and projects with uh dutch filmmakers and i hope i get this correct paul and meno or is it meno meno yes. meno that's correct Okay, the Nugier, did I destroy that name? The Neuer. <laughs> the Neuer, I knew I did. And you mentioned before the uh, German film director, Werner Herzog. Just talk a little bit about these projects and these people you're working with. Yeah, so with Paula Mann and the Neuer, um, they are very often experimental films or they are... Um, uh, performative, so there's live video and 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 live film. So um, I I am wearing a white suit and projection. I'm I'm having projection on my body, which means that I'm I will change color like a chameleon um, w- whilst I am playing. Um, so that's more in the in the experimental direction. We've done the Four Seasons by Vivaldi like that. Um, and also made several music theater, uh, theater shows. Um, the, the work with uh, Werner Herzog and also, actually also Alex and Andrew Smith, which is, uh, are fantastic filmmakers. Um, that, that is work that I do with um, cellist and composer Ernst Reisiger. And um, yeah, we've now w- made music for several, uh, several movies. That's excellent. Wow, good for you. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing that stuff. So in addition to being a musical artist, I understand that you also give master classes on recorder all around the world, and you're a visiting professor at the Krakow Music Academy in Poland. What aspect of teaching do you enjoy the most? I, I think I enjoy most when a student in kind of plateaued, so to speak, and is not doesn't know how to get... To, to improve beyond a certain point and then to kind of unlock a potential that the student didn't think it had. Um, and then hopefully the student feels really empowered and um, yeah, to, to, yeah, to continue. I mean, I, I always say that actually the level of a student is not so interesting for me, but the, the amount of progress is much more interesting. If, if a student is able to make progress, that's, that's really gratifying. Well, that's a sign right there of a great teacher. So I, I can tell right now you are a great teacher, and the way you speak is very uh, you know soft-spoken, and you're very interested in people and what they're doing. So it might be a little intimidating for a young person to hear you play this outrageous stuff on the recorder, but at the same time, uh, I'm sure that you get them to relax enough to be themselves and play and grow. It's not so important to, the question who is the best or uh, the second best, but more about differentiating and trying to make the point stronger 
that um, that you have. So focusing also on the kind of let's say the unique uniqueness of every every student, especially in in the old fashioned music academy, there is a strong focus on on creating um, uh, clones more or less. You know the, that people that uh, play all in a very similar way and. I, I hope that I can unlock the unique potential of every uh, student and yeah combine that with, with uh, of course, it has to go hand in hand with the craftsmanship. So let me ask you, do you have any musical or life philosophies or catchphrases that you live by? Well, there is Ars longa vita brevis. Art perseveres, but life is short. So... Uh, yeah, I I try to to make yeah to make something that that will have hopefully a little bit more longevity than than I do <laughs> as a as a human being, and that hopefully makes people uh, happy and and gives can give meaning to their life. Right. So the reason you're a music like myself and a lot of other people that I uh, collaborate with and perform, even though we get paid is no i would be here if you were not paying me not to say that i don't want to get paid but no it's such a pleasure to play with you know very fine musicians and you get a sonority you you know you're in sync with each other there's just a joy there and you look out in the audience and they feel that music is a calling wouldn't you agree oh it's absolutely a calling i always I, i always say it's activism nearly you know, I, I, of course, we 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 need and do want to get paid, but um, if if you if we would bill really all the hours that we would be working on oh. it, um, it would cost a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, <laughs> that's right. So, on the uh, flip side, as a musical artist, how important is the use of social media to you? Well, it is. It's very important. Uh, I, I, well, you found me through social media to begin with, right? Social media um, has become very important. Um, I remember there was a time that people sent newsletters, and well, some people still do. I don't do that anymore. Maybe I, I should be starting to do that again. I mean, I think it social media has uh, allowed me to to reach a more global audience, and also to get some uh, behind the scenes peaks. Um, yeah, and I don't take it too seriously. I mean, I post also some funny things that I see or, yeah, it's just, it's light entertainment, but, uh, there's also the, the danger that it, it, it takes too much time. Amen. Um, so yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, what we call here a, a necessary evil, but if you don't do it, no one knows who you are. Right. It's so okay. I got to do it. If we had enough money, we would pay someone to do it full time for us because we want to spend our time creating and recording and performing and talking about the music. Right. Yeah. It comes back to the fact if 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 a tree falls in the forest and nobody noticed it falling, did it really fall? Only if you post it on Instagram. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. If it wasn't photographed, it didn't happen. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So let me ask you, do you have any upcoming live performances or projects you'd like to announce? Well, for my American listeners, it might be uh, nice to know that I will 
be performing at the Boston Early Music Festival in June next year, June 2023. Um, so that that is in America, and I will also be in Mexico. That is relatively close to America. Um, yeah, and furthermore, uh, I've, I'm playing a lot in Europe, and normally I also play a lot in Asia, but that is not um, that's m- much more difficult now with uh, with COVID. So uh, I hope to to see some of your listeners uh, in Boston. Let me ask you, because I hear uh, you speak, and you speak in English very well. I know that's part of what you're, you're taught in your country. I'm assuming because you travel all around the world that you also speak other languages as well. Yes, I do. Yes. So I speak uh, Dutch. Uh, I speak German. I live in Germany. Uh, I speak Spanish, I speak French, and I speak a bit of Chinese as well. Wow. So where can my listeners find you on social media? So they can find me on Instagram, Facebook, on Twitter, and they can just, yeah, or go to my website. It's all linked there. So that's Eric Bosgraaf with a K, one O, double A for Bosgraaf. Okay. Well, Eric, this has been a pleasure interviewing you. I've learned so much about you and your craft as um, a musicologist, as a a phenomenal recorder player that plays them all. Um, You know, the way you explain things is just exceptional. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I hope that we get a chance to connect over the phone or text or email in the future. And I'll keep following you and listening to your music. Thank you so much, Scott, for this talk. And I also very much enjoyed this. Well, thank you. Eric, have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining me on today's show. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and could hear why my guest got chops. You can follow my podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or Anchor.fm, and stay connected between episodes on Instagram at Gotchops Podcast. Join me on the next episode when we discover why my next guest got chops. <laughs>